And so today the topic is peace be still, how to experience peace in the church. And let especially ask the Lord to bless us this morning. Heavenly Father, give me the unction of your Holy Spirit, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts is acceptable in your sight, O Lord, O Savior and Redeemer. Amen. We read in the scripture this morning, Jesus' last prayer, the intercessory prayer for his disciples. And you may say, yes, but that is fine, you know, that is 2,000 years ago. It's even more. And there is where we have this, and it started out with a crucial element here, and it says, sanctify them through thy truth, for thy word is truth. And it is not only for the disciples, but in verse 21, it says that they may all one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe thou hast sent me. So why is this so important? Why is it so important? That what happened here is a tremendous evangelistic tool because the world is now convicted of what? That Jesus is the Savior. And the Savior has been sent to us. And so everything, the oneness in the church, is a demonstration of Christ, the Savior. Now, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What is sanctification? Sanctify is what? Making someone holy. Now, how do you become holy? What does holiness bring? Unity, peace, and oneness. And so everything that happens in the church, when people see this, they must draw the attention to, hey, this is the result of Jesus. Now, how do we become holy? According to this text, what is that? Through the what? The truth. Sanctify them through the truth. And so to the truth, we become holy. And not only that, but where do we find the truth? Where do we find us? In God's word, the Bible, which then finally brings us peace and unity. That's extremely important, friends. Now, I don't know how many of you are on the world program of Bible reading. I have mentioned it several times before. Do you know where we are now? The whole world is supposed to be on what, in what chapter? 
Second Kings chapter 17. And every day we go one chapter further, one chapter further. And this is a united effort of the General Conference five years ago that we are all on the same line, the same page, and we get the same instruction and filling with the Holy Spirit. Now, I notice that many people are not even aware of this. But if you are not aware of this, don't feel sorry. Just jump on the ship today. And don't miss out. Tomorrow, the fascinating story about Hezekiah. And <coughs> the idea is that by the time of General Conference next year, we're all on the page of the book of Revelation. It's a wonderful thing, you know, and we do it all the time. And then you learn and you learn and you learn, and it is marvelous. But it is all there to make us holy. And it makes us holy be united in Christ. And now, this unity convinces the world of the belief in Jesus as a Savior. Now, when there is gossip, anger, arguing, distrust of leaders, as we have seen in the past. What is then the result? What does it do about the picture of Jesus that the world gets? It shatters the perfect portrait of Jesus to the world. And if Christians cannot be united, what message do we have to bear? Why should we join Christianity if you cannot even be one. Now, I have selected four elements of the early church, of conflict, there is conflict, and how it was solved. Now, one of the issues is who is the greatest. Remember? I mean, this was a, was a perpetual question of the disciples. And Jesus tried to teach kingdom humility. And I think we need it today more than ever. If you go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 to 3, what are the disciples discussing? They asked to Jesus, who is now the greatest? Me, the other one, you know? Who? It's a perpetual question. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest? in the kingdom of heaven. And it was in the beginning, and it was even at the last supper. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Becoming children. What does Jesus say here? In Matthew 18, verse 2 and 3, And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except you become converted, and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So this question of being like children, what is that? It's a salvation issue. Now as an adult, and you have studied much, and you may have collected some degrees, and then somebody says, unless you become like children. What a compliment is that? 
Don't you know my education? I went here to the college. I went to Adventist University here in Chattanooga. I went even to Andrews. Like children, they don't know anything. Yes. What is so unique about children? They are teachable. And whatever you say, what do they do? They believe. They believe it. You know, put this child on the table. And say, Johnny, jump. What do the children, what does the child do? No, 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 no. No. <coughs> it jumps because it has faith in you. Now, don't do it with the adults. <laughs> do they do it? No, definitely not. And so this is one of the things in regard to this. Then above uh, becoming servants. It's very interesting, you know, today in our magazines and whatever in our papers, you read frequently, ah, we have now a workshop. A workshop of what? Of leadership. How to become a leader. You have here today, you go to Andrews University, you can even find a doctorate in leadership. Now, have you ever seen workshops and doctorates in servanthood? I don't think so. And so here then, in John chapter 13, verse 4, 5, 12, and 15. He rises from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. And so after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord. And you say, Well, for so I am. If then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And this prepares them for the new covenant Lord's Supper. <coughs> you see, why did we as a church have first the foot washing? Because that's what you find in the Bible. You are not ready to enter into the intimate new covenant relationship of humility until you are willing to step down in great humility. You see? And then if you have in Bible studies, you share it with other Christians. He says, foot washing? Doing this? Why? Now, let me tell you, I mean, even the Pope does it. Once a year. In Rome, he goes down, and he goes to prison, and he washes their feet. That is what they have left over from early Christianity. We do it three times a year. Or four times a year, every quarter. Marvelous, becoming servants. And so, when the Lord's Supper started, nobody wanted to wash the feet. In some way, there was a misunderstanding, and nobody 
took this responsibility. And Jesus waited and waited until nobody took it up of himself and Jesus took it. Marvelous. No longer the highest place. In fact, here you see Jesus and Martha is staying on the left side and Mary sits on the feet of Jesus. It is the love of self that brings unrest in our lives. When we are born from above, the same mind will be in us as was in Jesus. The mind that led him to humble himself that we might be saved. Then we shall not be seeking the highest place. We shall desire to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of him. And yet, you know, here, Jesus has been talking and, and Mary was drinking up what Jesus said. And Martha was concerned because, hey, here are all the guests and we need, and when you finish, we need to eat. Yes. Say something about Mary. Can you imagine this in church also? After the sermon is over, everything rushes to the school. For what? For this fellowship dinner. And we can praise the Lord of the ladies that have already been working in advance. They skipped the benediction because everybody wanted to have a good meal. We shall understand that the value of our work does not consist in making a show and noise in the world and being active and zealous in our own strength. The value of our work is in proportion to the impartation of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, ladies, you don't need to run ahead and prepare all the meals so that when the gentleman and everybody else comes, it's all there spread out. Don't miss the benediction. Amen. Enjoy it. And then you go and enjoy the fellowship meal. And so what if we have to wait a little? It's a fellowship dinner. We can start in conversation. Enjoy each other. And then when the ladies are finished with putting the spread there, we can enjoy the meal. But we haven't missed anything from the service. See? It's a simple suggestion. Desire of Ages, 3.30. More of Christ. A hearty, willing service to Jesus produces a sunny religion. Those who follow Christ the most closely have not been gloomy. In Christ is light and peace and joy. What? Forevermore. We need more of Christ. Less worldliness. More of Christ. Less selfishness. Adventist Home, 431. And that is so marvelous. The Sabbath doesn't end 
with the fellowship meal, we can stay later on. And I know some churches, they have a fellowship meal, and then afterwards they come back to the church and discuss the marvelous message of the pastor. How much time do you think in a fellowship meal is spent of discussing the marvelous message? Nothing. I've been here, sitting here in the fellowship meal, and, and, and excellent, ladies, you have a marvelous, marvelous touch of the fellowship dinner. But not once I heard a discussion about the sermon. Think about it. You know, the Sabbath is the whole day. Not only the, the afternoon, you know, and then fellowship dinner, and then go back, go home to sleep, or whatever you want to do. <clears throat> now, after we have learned the humility, there is in the early church a whole discussion about leadership. Who is to lead? And you find this in the Corinthian church. There is a conflict going on. <coughs> First Corinthians 1, verse 10 and 11. And what does Paul say there? He is concerned what is taking place in the Corinthian church. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no division among you, but that you are perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Isn't it marvelous? If you have that in the church? For it has been declared unto me, of you, my brethren, that there are contentions among you. And in the rest of the chapter of Corinthians, you, you see the, the, the tension that is going on there. Yes, contentions among you. God's leaders. Now, I'm not going to discuss this chapter because there is a lot of controversy and our church has not settled on this, but it's very important. Maybe in Sabbath afternoon we could discuss this. 1 Corinthians 11, confusion about leadership. And in the beginning of this controversial chapter, Paul brings out something very, very important, and then he discusses the rest of the chapter uh, how it works out. The issue of the headship principle. And many of our churches, oh, there are, is no headship whatsoever in the church. But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. 1 Corinthians 11. Here is a statement, a principle, the headship principle. And the Christian church has followed this for many, many years. But today, our church, our own church, is absolutely divided. And it says, there is no headship. The only head is Christ. And I agree, Christ. But what does this text say? The text says, a hierarchy of leadership in the plan of salvation. God the Father is the head of Christ. There's a hierarchy. Here is God the Father. Then Christ, then Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of the woman, leader in the family and in the church, 
and that the woman is the supportive role of man in these functions. Now, if you read this chapter, then many people say, yeah, but what is going on there in the early church? It's not anymore a clip over because we don't do it, therefore it's gone. No, we may not understand this. In fact, in verse 8 and 9, it says the man is not from the woman, but the woman is from man. Now, where does that refer to? It refers to before the fall. Who was from the man? The woman. It was the operation. It was the surgery that God did. But the man was created by God and not from the woman. It's interesting you know, that it, it refers back to creation. Now here I stop before I get into hot water. <laughs> but it is a principle here that you see. And because Peter says, you know, Paul, be careful because there are many, many things that are hard to understand. And this is one of the things. But it is a principle that is given by God. And so if we don't know it, what do we have to do? We seek wisdom from God on our knees and we search and we find the truth as this in Jesus. Amen. And not say, oh yeah, you know, it is not anymore applicable. Try to find it out. Understanding gifts bring peace and unity. To prevent conflict, Paul presents a blueprint of church organization based on gifts and appointed positions. You know, it's very interesting. First Corinthians 12, and there you find all those uh, conditions. Diversity of gifts, the same spirit, the same Lord, the same God. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 to 7 states, Now there is a diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operation, but it is the same God, which worketh in all, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. So in other words, God gives those gifts, and everyone has one. So we never need to be disgruntled because we don't have certain things, or I can't speak or preach like this, or we can't, I can't do this, whatever. You know, one of the gifts that is recommended is the gifts, and you don't find a workshop on this, you know, but the gifts of help. Now, where do you find... Where do you find a workshop of how to be, get the gift of helps? But it's a very important thing, because if you don't have the gift of helps in the church, we are paralyzed. That are the helpers, the nobodies, that are the most valuable, frequently. And so God appointed appointees, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, and God has said, some into the church as apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healings, helps, governments, diversity of tongues. And each one of them makes up an ideal church. And who puts them there? God. 
God has set them. So therefore, we cannot say, hey, you know, you have this, or you have not that ed- education. You have no- Absolutely not. Yeah. It should be a num mm-hmm. thing in our church. And we should appreciate each one. Each one. Aha. Here we have a conflict that is with us, has been, and will remain with us. Ethnic conflicts. You know? That is number three. The conflict in the Jerusalem church. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of the disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Christians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. There was discrimination. Discrimination. Between who? The Christians. Those that have joined God's church of late. The newcomers. And the Hebrews, days that were already in function for a long, long time. And they saw that there was a mistreatment and a problem. And there was neglect. And there was a powerful conflict. And all the complaints were channeled to whom? The apostles. You know, the elders. Hey, you know, you have to do it. Here, solve our problem. Solve our problem. Peace to a multi-ethnic church. Because if you have ethnicity, you have always the danger of being discriminated against. And people say, hey, you know, it's not fair. Equality. I mean, this is, this is here in our church. Equality. Between everybody, no matter what. Male, female, children, equal, equal. Acts 6, verse 2 through 6. And then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples to them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve the tables. Why did they say it? Because all the complaints were given to the leadership, to the elders, to the apostles. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We cannot let that go down. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, the whole congregation. And they choose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of the church of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles and whom they had prayed and laid their hands on them. So you can hear the ordination service of the deacons. The observation, they delegated the responsibility according to the abilities. And I tell you, if you ask the pastor to do certain things, give me 10 elders. No, give me only a few deacons. And he will fix everything. And the pastor doesn't know hardly anything about those things. So this is according to the gifts that God has given. 
And this solves the whole thing. And so the organization that you, what you find in Acts chapter 6 is a model for our church. And this is what the spirit of prophecy says. The organization of the church at Jerusalem was to serve as a model for the organization of the church in every other place where the messenger of truth should win converts to the gospel. So is it still okay for us today? Yes. Very much so. Those to whom was given the responsibility of the general oversight of the church were not to lord over this God's heritage, but as wise shepherds were to feed the flock of God, being examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5, verse 2 and 3. And the deacons were to be men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Acts of the Apostles, chapter, page 91. And here, you know, this simple organization eliminated the fight of who is the leader and who should be doing it. No. This is the model blueprint. Observations, elders and deacons are the ordained leaders. Those are the two only ordination services that you find in the Bible. And, uh, <clears throat> and yet, unfortunately, we have now a whole fight on the ordination. Who will be in charge? And you know, with leadership, it is frequently who is in charge? You or me? And so it is very important to learn from the Bible. There is no room for prejudice. The angel guided Philip to the one who was seeking for light and who was ready to receive the gospel. And today angels will guide the footsteps of those workers who will allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify their tongues, refine and ennoble their hearts. Isn't it beautiful? The angel sent to Philip could, him, could himself have done the work to the, for the Ethiopians, but this was not God's way of working. It is his plan that men are to work for their fellow man. Acts of the Apostles 109. The Ethiopian represented a large class who needs to be taught by such missionaries as Philip. Men who will hear the voice of God and go where he sends them. There are many, keep in mind, there are many who are reading the scriptures who cannot understand their true import. All over the world, men and women are looking wistfully to heaven. Prayers and tears are inquiries go up from souls longing for light, for grace, for the Holy Spirit. Many are on the verge of the kingdom, waiting only to be gathered in. And should, should prejudice prevent us from working with people in the slums, the homeless, the migrants, whoever they are? Many are looking wistfully to heaven. And do they find in the Adventist church men and women who said, Lord, send me. And remember, the Lord can bring you and lead you to people that are just ready. But have you prayed? 
to the Lord? Have you asked for people who needed help, who needed instruction in the Word of God? Here it is. Here we have a whole army of workers. And how many of us are involved in the army? And then, of course, the battle about salvation. How are you going to be saved? Faith versus works. The Galatian conflict about how to be saved. Galatians 1, verse 6, 7, and 9. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ and to another gospel, which is not another, but there are be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach you any other gospel unto you, that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul is very, very strong. If you hear anything else than salvation by faith, you be cursed. How to bring peace to salvation by works? Teach them that they are justified by works? No. By the faith of Christ. Knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. Even if we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, last week we had a tremendous sermon here. Tremendous appeal. But remember that when you make adjustments to your behavior, it still is not a guarantee for salvation. Because you can only do all those things that the gospel requires through the faith of Jesus. See? And if you don't know how to do it, call upon the Lord. And say, Lord, I'm weak. Every time I fall, I fall, I fail. And then Jesus says, here is my faith. Take it. You see the implication? And you have to believe in Christ. To get the faith of Jesus. Very simple. And friends, that is beautiful, beautiful. And the early Christians had, had difficulty with this. And the Adventist church has also today difficulty with this. But let us depend on Jesus. Because he is it all. And no matter what we do, how we have failed, again, we have to go back to Jesus. Equality of salvation for all, but not everyone has the same roles. Galatians 3, 26 and 29, that has been used frequently between the equality of all of us. But here it says, For you all are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So you have to be a faith in Jesus to be a child of God. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have been put on Christ. Remember, you go into the water. The sins are being washed away. And you come out of the water covered with the righteousness of Christ. Beautiful. Beautiful. 
there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. See, here is the true equality. And what kind of equality is it? And if you be in Christ, you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Here is the promise of eternal life. And you receive that. If you're a child of God, if you're baptized into Christ, and there is any difference of nationality disappears. Any difference between male and female disappears. It has not to do with function, no, with the heritage. The heritage of eternal life. That is what you get. And that makes everyone equal. Whether you can when you when you can explain things like that, when the, whatever happens to you, there is the equality in the inheritance of Abraham, children according to the promise. And what about after all those things you still don't agree? You know, you are humble, you are the right type of leader, the right type of function, the inheritance, the ethnic equality in Christ. And in spite of all those things, you don't agree. What then? Just says, you know, Pastor, I tried it all, I tried it all. Be at peace anyway. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and 13. <coughs> and we beseech you, brethren, to know, when, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. See here, in the church, you have leadership qualities. The elders have certain responsibilities to help you to see the right light and to admonish you, to correct you, pastor also. But they are being sent by God to perfect the church and to esteem them, those leaders, those who admonish you, who correct you, who help you, Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourself. So no matter what happened, if somebody comes to you and says, Sister or oh brother, I appreciate so much what you said, but I, I have a little difficulty with this. You know, can you explain it to me? Can we, can we discuss this? Can we walk together through those things? Here? Oh, yeah, I don't agree with you. I don't agree with you. I, uh, I have been taught by another pastor, and that is what he has told me. So don't meddle with me. Be at peace anyway. Be at peace anyway. Praise the Lord that the Lord has some people that can help each other in the walk to heaven. Yeah. And we may do it all wrong. Help me. We are there to help us on the way to heaven to sanctification no matter what and be humble enough to admit to correction again remember humility 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 is the blueprint for salvation 
and for the walk to heaven. And so, friends, here we see. And this is what I like to share with you. James White's regret. James White experience. And you know he was one of the most powerful leaders that our church had in the beginning. A few weeks before his death. Both Ellen and James were suffering of diseases. And this is what Ellen White wrote about the experience. While walking to the usual prayer for prayer, James White stopped abruptly. His face was very pale and he said, A deep solemnity is upon my spirit. I am not discouraged but I feel that some change is about to take place in the affairs that concern my wife, my, myself, and you, Ellen. What if you, Ellen, should not live? Oh, this cannot be. God has a work for you to do. But I hope you will give yourself time to rest, that you may recover from this enfeebled condition. That is what James says to his wife. Then it continues. Now a few days. The other one was a few weeks. Now it is a few days before his death. Where in humility of soul to each other. We there in humility of soul confessed to each other our errors. Yeah, it, it talks about also about Ellen White's errors. Towards James. No, that can't be for the prophet. Listen, I mean, that's what James says. And then made earnest supplication for the mercy and blessing of God. How quickly, said James, our self-sufficiency disappears when we obtain a view of Jesus on the cross. This experience shall never be forgotten by me. When misunderstood and misrepresented... I, James, have permitted a combative spirit to be aroused in me and have sought to vindicate my course. Now I see my mistake in this. I will never again call attention to myself. And then he continues. It has seemed hard to me that my motives should be misjudged. James says, you know, I do the very best I can for the church and I'm always misjudged. And that my best efforts to help, encourage, strengthen my brethren should be again and again be turned against me. But I should have remembered Jesus and his disappointment. Jesus' soul was grief. He was not appreciated by those he came to bless. Had I ever left all my perplexities with the Lord, thinking less about what others said about and did against me, I should have had more peace and joy. I will now seek first to guard myself, that I offend not in word or deed, and then to help my brethren to make straight paths for their feet. I will not stop to mourn over 
any wrong done to me. I have expected more of man than I ought. And then Ellen White says, Little I did think as we traveled on that this was the last journey we would ever make together. This is from pamphlet 168, a memorial, a sketch of the last sickness and death of Elder James White. Can we learn something of his experience? That we should not be affected and concerned about the others, about me? But think about Jesus. And what people did to Jesus. And at the end, when he hung on the cross, all his people except John had left him. Friends, if James White had thought this more, he says, he who should have more peace and joy. And it's the same for us. Our church experience can be one of the most beautiful ones if we think less about other thoughts, what they think about us. So friends, what an example. Peace be still. How to experience peace in the church. And here the summary of having peace in the church. In conflict situations, is the Bible is the word of God that restores peace and unity. And so it is today. You agree with that? And so an invitation to be, to bringing peace and unity to your church. Today I commit myself to help the Lord to do everything possible to bring peace to my church. Is this your commitment? Can I see the hands of those who want to make this commitment? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this message that you have brought us this morning. How we can have joy and peace through Jesus and the cross. And we are only disciples. We make many mistakes. But if we keep in mind the true pathway to heaven is through humility. The true leadership is through what you have appointed to us. How we can have avoided all the ethnic conflicts in our church at the same time that we are only saved through the faith of Jesus. And so, Father, give us that experience. You have seen the hands of those who wanted to go all the way with you, Father. May this week also the beginning of a new week and a new life in Jesus. And may we be less concerned about others and what they think about us than we are more concerned about what you think about us. Oh, Father, may we walk with Jesus day by day. And this coming week, may it be an example of the glories that you have for us in store. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.